This episode of The Sweaty Penguin is brought to you by TikTok Couples. Do you want to know with complete certainty that other people are much happier than you? Try TikTok Couples today. Welcome to episode 97 of The Sweaty Penguin, Antarctica's hottest podcast. I'm your host, Ethan Brown. Today, we are talking about cryptocurrency, also known as the opposite of social currency. Well, I guess crypto bros get to be friends with each other. Now don't turn off the podcast just yet. I know you're probably used to tuning out those mouth-breathing finance bros who start sentences with NFTs or crypto, but trust me, this will be worth it. While you might have heard of some of the bigger names like Bitcoin and Ethereum, which together make up over half of the crypto market share, there are actually over 19,000 cryptocurrencies circulating around the world right now. It boomed during quarantine, apparently Tiger King was a cultural appetizer and getting into online currencies was the main course, and then in 2021, the global market value of cryptocurrency doubled. But with this growing popularity comes a cost. Some of these coins require a ridiculous amount of energy. In fact, a single Bitcoin transaction uses the same amount of energy as over 300,000 credit card transactions. For my mom, that's like a whole holiday season's worth of shopping. So today, we're going to talk about why cryptocurrency is using so much energy, what the implications of that are, and how crypto can mitigate these issues moving forward. The Sweaty Penguin is presented by Peril and Promise, a public media initiative from the WNET Group in New York, reporting on the issues and solutions around climate change. You can learn more at pbs.org slash perilandpromise. If you want to take two minutes to help out The Sweaty Penguin, you can either leave us a five-star rating and review, or join our Patreon at patreon.com slash thesweatypenguin. Doing either earns you a special shout-out at the end of the show. Joining the Patreon gets you merch, bonus content, and a whole lot more. But first, it's time for Crypto 101. And naturally, this course is only offered at college frat parties, so buckle up. Like dollar bills, euros, gold, silver, baseball cards, and silly bands, cryptocurrency is a form of exchange. These exchanges are all predicated on a universal buy-in that this currency has inherent value. You know. If you receive a dollar from someone, you can then use that dollar to buy something like a pencil or a tablespoon of gasoline, and as such, you buy into the currency. If we were in medieval Siberia, you could probably say the same thing about squirrel pelts. And I'm sure there was the equivalent of finance bros, except they geeked out over the softness of the squirrel pelt instead of the level of the Dow. Crypto has been pretty successful in convincing a lot of people of its inherent value as well, 
and as such, a segment of the population willingly trades and uses these currencies. Cryptocurrency had its first claim to fame in 2008, when it released the song Hot and Cold. Oh wait, no, that was Katy Perry. Sorry, I always mix those up. Cryptocurrency's 2008 claim to fame was when the plan of Bitcoin was written out by someone or some group of people under the codename Satoshi Nakamoto. I personally would have picked a different code name like Finance Friend or Show Me the Money or James Bitcoin, but to each his own. And since Satoshi Nakamoto is a phantom, Bitcoin as a currency is a lot more decentralized than any currency that came before it. According to Alice Fullwood of The Economist, that's the thing that makes Bitcoin stand out from other currencies. So a blockchain is just a database, uh, but it's a special kind of database. So rather than being stored on sort of a single computer by a single institution like a bank, say um, it is a database that is distributed across uh, lots of computers uh, called nodes, and they each have a copy of this database and they update it uh, in blocks. The blockchain is sort of a key part of crypto. It was invented with the invention of uh, Bitcoin, and it helps uh, add new transactions without appealing to a single centralized entity. Uh, everyone in the uh, computer network has to agree for a new block to be added. Alice calls the blockchain a key part of crypto, and that's because no other type of currency shares these characteristics. There's no government that can accept bribes or print more bitcoins on a whim. Anyone with a computer, Wi-Fi, and a lot of boredom has the ability to go in and verify the entire transaction history of bitcoin. And there's no central bank where all transactions have to be approved, which is wild to think about. Imagine Gringotts Wizarding Bank with no goblins to run it? Complete anarchy. Hufflepuff's cup would have been gone by Chamber of Secrets. So if you've ever wondered why people even bothered to invent cryptocurrency, as I have about 10 times a day for the last several years, it's not just because some dudes at the gym needed a topic of conversation for in-between sets. To Alice's point, there is a level of accountability and transparency that Bitcoin and other cryptocurrencies are aiming to achieve. If there is no centralized bank, though, how do we ensure no currency is used more than once? How do we ensure all transactions are real? There's two ways that cryptocurrencies can go about this verification. Proof of work and proof of stake. Can the money hold a 9-to-5 job, or can it grill a mean porterhouse? <laughs> Just kidding, no one grills steak as well as the peso. <laughs> In reality, proof of work is done through mining, which you may have heard of. People can log in all over the world and compete to solve puzzles that verify transactions. The puzzles are too complicated to get into for our purposes. They're less like a Wordle and more like a crossword-themed escape room that only a supercomputer can handle. 
But the main takeaway is that the entire proof-of-work process is built on competition. Whichever user solves the puzzle first is awarded in cryptocurrency value, and the transactions in that puzzle are now verified and uploaded to the blockchain, that digital ledger of all the transactions that we just discussed. In other words, the process to validate transactions simultaneously creates new units of the currency. Proof-of-work is what Bitcoin uses and what Ethereum used until recently, so it's certainly the most popular and well-known system. And that proof-of-work system is where we start to see some environmental problems. Proof-of-work requires immense amounts of computational power, as many people and computers are attempting to solve the algorithm at the same time. You know when you try to get Green Day tickets at the same time as everyone else, and then the ticket site crashes, and you can't get general admission tickets, so that means you just wasted a ton of time just to ultimately not be able to mosh? It's similar for proof-of-work crypto. Many computers are solving the algorithm at the same time, requiring a vast amount of power to make sure everything runs smoothly. If everyone is trying to solve the same puzzle, but only one person ends up verifying and adding transactions to the blockchain, then all of the computer power used for the computers that don't come in first is basically wasted energy. You would think that with a name like Bitcoin, they would only use a little bit of power, but apparently that's not the case. And do you remember in the intro, when I said cryptocurrency is becoming increasingly valuable and popular? According to Ryan Brown, a crypto expert at CNBC, those rising prices are driving more people to compete on these algorithms. And there is a direct correlation people have been noticing between the rising price of Bitcoin and the level of network difficulty and competitiveness of all these miners trying to participate in, in the network over time. Ryan finds that both the difficulty and competitiveness in mining new Bitcoins is going up, and as such, the amount of energy being used for crypto would go up as well. As of just this May, Bitcoin alone uses 150 terawatt hours of electricity per year, which is more than the entire country of Argentina, where there are over 45 million people. Plus, think of all the soccer stadiums they have to light. You know it's a problem when in comparison to Argentinian soccer, crypto is even more... Messy. Dedicating that one to the two soccer fans listening. But it's a lot of electricity we're talking about here. Google could power all of its operations on the amount of electricity Bitcoin uses per year seven times over. And remember, a large portion of that electricity is coming from users who compete to solve the algorithms, don't win, and ultimately see no benefit from that energy use, unless we count it as relevant work experience on their resume. Where does this energy come from? In large part, fossil fuels. And that's where this becomes a climate problem.
If you've listened to almost any other episode of the podcast, you probably have learned that fossil fuels release carbon dioxide into the atmosphere, which absorbs solar radiation and ultimately warms the planet, and that has a number of consequences for the world as we've covered in many other episodes as well. But given the blatant inefficiency associated with crypto mining where so much energy gets wasted, I would say it's worth being concerned no matter what energy source we're talking about. If it's solar or wind, you have to mine minerals and manufacture the panels and turbines. If it's nuclear, you have to mine uranium and use lots of water in the reactors. If you try powering it like that potato clock we all did for our fourth grade science fair, you still have to do a really awkward trip to Home Depot with your dad. And given that there is still a limited supply of clean energy in the electric grid, if crypto is sucking up a large portion of it, that means other industries can't. So even though from a carbon accounting perspective, we can say clean energy is better for the climate than fossil fuels, crypto mining is just a case where it's so blatantly inefficient that it's almost hard to justify any energy source in a business-as-usual scenario. Now, in proof-of-work cryptocurrencies defense, it does offer some flexibility for electric grids that aren't yet climate-resilient. Take Texas. A heat wave that hit last month in central Texas sent temperatures up to 110 degrees Fahrenheit and had the state's power grid experiencing extremely high demand. In response to this, Bitcoin mining operations across the state were paid to power down their plants, and they did. This helped to free up power for important services, like air conditioning and cooking baby back ribs. And it was profitable for Bitcoin miners who got paid to do this and as a result didn't have to worry about those high electricity bills. And for that reason, according to Texas Blockchain Council Director of Bitcoin Analytics Steve Kennard, Bitcoin presents a solution to Texas's energy woes. If you think about it, there's only a couple of hundred hours a year in which temperatures get really hot or are sometimes really cold and we get these kinds of emergency conservation warnings. So the the issue here is how do we bring the abundant resources that Texas has, whether that be natural gas, wind uh, or solar, and make it available for those couple hundred hours? And the answer is Bitcoin mining because they are that flexible load. Okay, I know Steve is talking futuristically here but think about his premise. We want to create a grid with the capacity to heat or air condition all of Texas during a cold wave or heat wave, and if the weather isn't bad, then let's still operate at capacity, but waste all the energy-solving Bitcoin algorithms. And I get why that sounds appealing. If you're in Bitcoin or you're an energy company and you want to sell more energy. But do you notice how he framed it? By pointing to Bitcoin as the solution, he's suggesting that the problem is we have too much energy. Who's going to use it? And that's not the case. The problems are that there's not enough energy or grid resilience to withstand these extreme weather events, and that using more and more fossil fuel energy drives climate change. 
And Bitcoin isn't the solution to those problems. Bitcoin just adds another massive electricity user to the mix. A solution would have to be some mix of scaling up cleaner energy sources, making the electric grid more resilient, and or making our electricity consumption more efficient. And if we're talking efficiency, Bitcoin and other proof-of-work cryptocurrency doesn't look too exciting anymore. And currently operating power grids are not the only ones struggling to accommodate cryptocurrency. All across the U.S., Coal-fired power plants are being reopened solely to power cryptocurrency mining. If this sounds to you like it could be the setting of the next Jordan Peele horror movie, it's because it absolutely could. One coal-fired power plant in Montana, the Hardin Generating System, was slated to be shut down in 2018, but in 2020, it found one singular but power-hungry customer, Marathon, a Bitcoin mining company. The coal plant also chatted with companies called 5K and 10K, but wanted to be sure their partner would be in it for the long haul. By December of 2020, solely due to this company Marathon, the power plant was operating nearly at full capacity and emitting almost 500,000 tons of carbon dioxide. Similar scenarios have occurred in New York, Pennsylvania, and Kentucky, what are sometimes referred to as zombie coal plants, are being reawakened as mining companies flood U.S. power systems. Mr. Peel, the plot's all here. All you gotta do is write the script and cast Daniel Kaluuya as the power plant. And the issue actually goes beyond climate change. Be it resurrected coal plants or just fossil fuel-heavy electric grids, Crypto miners tend to set up shop where energy is the cheapest, and this can create some really concentrated areas of pollution. Take Seneca Lake, New York, where Greenage, a Bitcoin mining company, purchased a canceled power plant and began powering 8,000 computers. Pretty bold of them to look past the power plant's tweets from 2014. I mean, it was canceled for a reason. Residents in Seneca Lake began reporting that the gas-fired plant was polluting the air and heating up the lake, causing the water to feel like a hot tub. There was that one weird guy who loved their new hot tub lake, using it as an opportunity to fit in an after-work coos sesh, but most were really concerned. That's just one example of how such intense energy use in one region can have some freaky environmental impacts. Proof-of-work crypto's high electricity demand also drives another issue, electronic waste. Unfortunately, e-waste is a little more complicated than just listening to that satisfying little crunching noise that my computer makes every time I empty my Mac's trash. E-waste actually encompasses discarded electrical and electronic parts and materials like phones, TVs, and computers. And we already know that crypto mining uses enormous amounts of computer power. In fact, according to a 2021 paper in Resources Conservation and Recycling, Bitcoin alone generates over 30 kilotons of e-waste per year. At peak Bitcoin price levels, when it became more profitable to mine coins, this number jumps up even higher. I feel bad for Bitcoin's roommate, who probably is always like, 
Hey bro, do you mind taking out the trash today? And time and time again, Bitcoin just lets those 30 kilotons pile up in the kitchen. What does that have to do with electricity? Everything, according to the paper's author, Alex DeVries of VU Amsterdam. You always want to have the most efficient machine so that you minimize your energy cost component. And over the past years, these miners or these people have constantly developed new, more powerful machines. But as newer generations fill up the network, older device types become unprofitable. And they are not able to compete with the newer generation anymore. And at some point, pretty quickly, we quantify in 1.3 years on average, they just become economically obsolete. Alex quantified the lifespan of these machines at 1.3 years. So think about how many computer funerals finance bros must go to. I mean, I've had two laptops my entire life, and this one acts as if the battery died the second I unplugged the charger. Can crypto miners send me one of these machines? Alex's argument here, though, is that the reason new machines are needed so frequently is the high electricity demand. If electricity weren't such an issue, maybe machines would stay viable for longer. That would mean less need for heavy metals to create the machines and less accumulation of e-waste, which sends toxic and flammable materials into landfills. In all fairness, I have heard that some of these machines get second lives and that you can actually go purchase a lot of this hardware on eBay. But again, even if that practice were wide scale, like with the Texas electric grid or canceled coal plants, that would be crypto walking in, expecting everyone else to adapt to their needs, and then calling themselves so great and sustainable for promoting the reuse of their products. It's an issue of efficiency, and no matter how you slice it, Alex's findings matter. So where does crypto go from here? Well, one option is actually to just flat out ban it. And I only say that because that's what China did. They were that sick of crypto bros. It's honestly understandable. But even though China's response did eliminate cryptocurrency mining in the country, it only promoted companies to move. It didn't hold them accountable. Just like I wasn't held accountable for my ringer going off in Tai Chi. All I did was return to the United States and forget to turn my ringer off during the new Minions movie. If we're that concerned about crypto, that we're actually talking about banning it, it would require global coordination to actually address the scope of the problem. But there's other approaches too. Remember when I mentioned that proof of work isn't the only verification system out there? There's also one called proof of stake. And this one doesn't require nearly as much energy consumption. Instead of mining, proof of stake selects validators based on how much currency they have previously worked with. This sort of authenticity process exists in all types of industries. Think about the difference in respect and appreciation you'd get if you already acted in multiple films with Robert De Niro with some reviewers saying that your performance outshined his versus if you've only done three Arby's commercials. Not like Arby's commercials aren't dramatic, authentic thespian work, but you know what I mean. So this selection process is done by the blockchain algorithm. After that validator has validated a transaction, 
they are awarded in cryptocurrency, and the transactions are validated by others afterwards to ensure everything is authentic. After a threshold of these validations has been reached, the transaction moves on to the blockchain ledger. In other words, you no longer have all the wasted energy from multiple people trying to solve every problem at once and making the most high-powered machines they can in order to do it quickly. And this proof-of-stake concept is starting to catch on. Just three days ago, Ethereum, the second-largest cryptocurrency, was in the news for deciding to make the switch. Okay, for our main story of the day, we're taking a look at the Ethereum merge. Now, Ether has rallied in recent days as investors anticipate the upgrade, and lots of industry experts claim the transition to proof of stake is a major milestone for Ethereum's adoption. You know how the Bitcoin inventor remains unknown under the phantom name Satoshi Nakamoto and as such can't accept bribes? Well, Ethereum, Ethan Brown, I don't want to like, say this outright, but my Venmo is open. It certainly does bring a lot of credibility to this proof-of-stake concept, though, knowing Ethereum is making the switch. Certainly with it being in the news, we can see that others are taking notice. And governments could find ways to incentivize a transition for other currencies. That said, we haven't seen proof-of-stake play out for a currency of Ethereum's size. Certainly there's excitement, as you could hear in the clip, but it remains to be seen how Ethereum will respond to such a major change. For companies who cannot make the transition now, another option would be relocating mining to areas with abundant renewable energy. That can ensure three things. One, renewable energy is actually being used to power mining operations. Two, the renewable energy that is being generated can be used no matter if there's demand or not. And three, they're getting self-fulfillment using healthy habits as opposed to toxic ones. That last one is not necessarily scientific, it's just some advice my psych major friend told me that I think crypto could really use right now. Unlike residences and businesses, where demand fluctuates more, crypto mines are running pretty consistently. And so if there's abundant renewable energy and no storage capacity for it, they can jump in and make sure that energy doesn't go to waste. As crypto becomes more and more valuable, there is no time like the present to start taking these issues seriously. This is a mind-blowing electricity suck, but with some better practices in place, it doesn't have to be. And if proof-of-work can address these challenges across the board, we'll see a nice dent in global climate change, less coal plants and e-waste, and ensure if your frat bro friends want to mansplain something to you, at least it will be something sustainable. Do you hate feeling secure about your hashtag single life? Then TikTok couples are for you. With TikTok couples, you can watch people who love each other way more than you love anyone do funny challenges that you'd totally do, but you can't because your life sucks. Just got into a relationship? Well, tough luck on you. 
because there's a 99.9% chance your new partner is going to be too camera shy to participate anyway. Try again, dummy. TikTok couples, they're definitely not just putting on a show for the camera. The Sweaty Penguin is presented by Paraland Promise, a public media initiative from the WNET Group in New York, reporting on the issues and solutions around climate change. You can learn more at pbs.org slash Promise. Welcome back to The Sweaty Penguin. With me today is Dr. Benjamin Jones, Associate Professor of Economics at the University of New Mexico. Dr. Jones, welcome to the show. Hi, Ethan. Thanks for having me here. First off, could you tell us a bit about your background and research interests? Uh, I'm an economist, and I primarily work on uh, environmental economics, uh, specifically looking at how um, pollution exposure affects human health outcomes and what are the economic impacts of that. Uh, so more recently, I have been working in the space of cryptocurrency impacts on the environment, on climate, and on human health. And you started to mention it there, but one of your papers that gained some recent popularity aimed to assess the economic value of the health impacts associated with cryptocurrency mining. Could you tell us a bit about this paper and what some of the findings were? This paper uh, was co-authored with uh, two other colleagues here at the University of New Mexico. And we were sort of struck by the fact um, that Bitcoin, uh, but also other proof-of-work cryptocurrencies are using tremendous amounts of electricity. And we started to ask ourselves, uh, where is this electricity coming from? And uh, at the levels that they're using, we would just assume, hypothesize that it would have large impacts on air pollution. And of course, um, if it's coming from fossil fuels, it would uh, emit lots of carbon into the atmosphere, so there would be climate change impacts. And so basically what we did uh, is we sort of looked at various energy use uh, in the United States and in China for the, uh, at the time, the four most prominent cryptocurrencies, among them Bitcoin and Ethereum, and traced out uh, to the best of our ability where those electricity sources were and what are the uh, human health impacts associated with fossil fuel power plant emissions. And then we also looked at some of the climate change um, impacts through what's known as the social cost of carbon. And I imagine these numbers are not the easiest thing to quantify. Cryptocurrency mining doesn't all take place in one location. So you're looking at a very, very broad range, um, not just of uh, health impacts, but also locations. So how do you go about assessing these numbers in this study? Yes, it's really hard. Uh, by uh, its nature, uh, uh, Bitcoin, Ethereum, uh, uh, other cryptocurrencies are inherently um, decentralized. That's sort of the whole point of them. And uh, being able to piece down exactly where a miner is located and what uh, electricity they're using uh, when we did this paper, we had no such data. So instead, we take this sort of uh, simple approach where we say, well, let's just assume a miner in a particular, let's say, U.S. state just hooked up to the grid. Uh, and the average electricity grid uh, mix, that is, of renewables and fossil fuels in a state. And so that's the approach that we used uh, for our work. Uh, and it's challenging because we don't quite have a sense, at least we didn't at the time, 
of uh, how this might compare to actual sort of uh, estimates of renewable versus fossil fuel use. And the intermediate, uh, and, and intermediate period since our paper came out in 2020, there's been better estimates out there of um, uh, what sort of the sources of electricity are for the miners. And it seems our, our results are, uh, you know, our assumption of a miner just hooking up to the grid and using, let's say, 20% renewables, right, just to give it, just to throw out a number, but it would vary by state, isn't a bad approximation for what we think is actually happening. So after assessing those costs, um, I guess it was a couple of years ago, so maybe there are more data since then, but were there any numbers in particular that jumped out to you? So the first number that sort of jumped out was how much electricity is being used. And this is in, we think of our electricity bills as in kilowatts. Sometimes we hear of megawatts, but cryptocurrency is, is using electricity in the terawatts. And uh, the, the sheer amount of it was sort of striking to us. And, uh, and it's more than other countries use in a whole year. Uh, so um, a comparable that's often given is like Argentina uh, or the Philippines. So Bitcoin mining alone is using more electricity. Uh, than these countries in a year. So that was shocking to us. And the second thing that sort of came out to, to us was just how large the damages are relative to the value of a coin mined. So one of our headline results from the paper was, um, in particular in 2018, uh, each $1 of Bitcoin value that's created through the mining process was associated with about 50 cents uh, in health and climate damages in the United States. So that is uh, about half of every dollar value generated as a part of this proof of work process with miners doing their work. About half of that is basically externalities that are being imposed on you and me and every other American through increased air pollution um, and uh, damages to the climate and the environment. Talking about this climate piece, using this much fossil fuel energy obviously has a major impact in terms of carbon emissions. So why have a lot of cryptocurrencies chosen to make their mining this energy intensive? No, that's a good question. And part of it comes down to it's not so much their choice as much as it is uh, how the um, the system, if you will, the algorithms, the, the underlying technology was created. So proof of work, uh, which is your Bitcoin, your Ethereum, uh, which are the two largest coins, uh, how they're designed is it's a winner take all system. So a bunch of miners around the globe compete to solve these problems. And the one who solves it the quickest gets a number of coins as a reward. Uh, but uh, everybody who spent a bunch of energy and electricity, but wasn't uh, the first to solve the problem, gets nothing as a reward. And, uh, and so this creates a lot of waste. It creates a lot of electricity use uh, because you have sort of this system where you have lots of miners um, expending energy, uh, but getting nothing in return. And so really uh, the underlying structure, the underlying technology is to blame for, for the energy use. Just to clarify, when we talk about miners, are we talking about companies? Are we talking about individuals who do this as a job? Or are we talking about just people sitting on the couch who do this as a hobby? Uh, all of the above. Although the ones who are doing it at scale, they're, as you would expect, very uh, um, um, 
centralized, organized uh, um, processes and groups. Uh, and so some of these uh, are very, are corporations uh, who have large mining camps, as they call them, uh, and they're connected, they're in areas with cheap power, cheap electricity, uh, and that they can use it, um, you know, abundantly. Uh, others are um, your friend in the basement who has their computer hooked up. Uh, but really, those types of people, they're not getting, they're going to spend more electricity than they're going to get um, in coins, especially for Bitcoin in particular, just because they're never going to successfully solve a problem uh, compared to the sort of uh, industrialized, right, sort of mining farms. But it's, it's people all over the world and uh, doing sort of all of the above that you mentioned. Given that some cryptocurrencies are maybe at different levels of energy intensity, do you find that it's fair to just group cryptocurrency together in these conversations? Or is it better to kind of refer to them individually? Like, are the impacts very different if you go from coin to coin? Oftentimes, people will lump all the cryptocurrencies together. Uh, and really the ones we're most concerned about are the proof of work coins because these are the winner take all systems where you have tremendous electricity use. For other coins such as proof of stake coins, um, their energy use is very small. So really it is a, a coin by coin analysis that one should do and that we do in our work. But I think as people are trying to understand the environmental and climate impacts, looking at specific coins is the way to sort of go about this. Uh, and Bitcoin uh, gets a lot of press, one, because it's um, the largest coin by market capitalization, but two, it's using, uh, it's an energy hog, it's using most of the energy. And then as you start to move away from there, down the list of market cap, the energy use is high and can be considerable, but uh, much less than what Bitcoin is, is using. And so I think from my perspective, I always say proof of work cryptocurrencies um, uh, to differentiate from proof of stake. But then within that, certainly there are fine, finer um, uh, gradations we want to look at coin by coin. Looking ahead, I hear a lot that cryptocurrencies are looking to be sustainable by switching to clean energy or investing in carbon markets. And that might make them look good on paper, but it does get kind of complicated. Carbon markets are wonky for a number of reasons. As for energy, at least until clean energy is scaled up significantly, crypto would sort of be preventing others from accessing it. So how much promise do these sort of mostly business as usual, just change the technology or process have? One of the things that uh, often comes up and um, what you'll see in news reports and what what I read from industry is that, you know, they're slowly transitioning towards renewables or in some cases um, um, they're making these big discrete jumps. So this is what they say, but you hit the nail on the head when you said there's not X, there's really in the United States, very little excess renewable capacity that's just sitting out there uh, for the miners to exploit. And, and it seems in many cases um, when we, when they're searching for new sources of electricity, they're, uh, bringing online coal plants that have been previously shut down or scaled down, or they're um, investing in natural gas facilities. Uh, and while there are some headline examples of, uh, you know, some uh, renewables, hydro, for example, or some wind, and occasionally some solar facilities, these seem to be the minority of what they're using 
um, uh, when they're expanding capacity. And I think going forward, it's really critical for us as a society to think carefully about how do we make this sustainable if the business as usual, as you put it, current trajectory um, isn't sustainable. And uh, in our mind, changing the underlying technology from proof of work to proof of stake is one sort of obvious solution. Uh, but in reality, there are lots of challenges and implementation challenges of doing so. You said before how these are very decentralized. And so I'm just kind of curious when we're talking about these decisions and we're talking about like they want to switch to uh, more sustainable practices or what have you, who exactly are we referring to? Because certainly there are miners all over the place who I'm sure are if you're in your basement, you're just plugging into your wall outlet. So who exactly is in power to make a decision to turn a coin more sustainable? Yeah, I wish I had a good answer for you. I don't. Um, that's a little bit outside of my area. What I will say is that um, uh, you have to have consensus from essentially all the miners. And uh, it's sort of more complicated than that is my understanding. And in particular for the case of Bitcoin, uh, there's mining pools. So there's a group of miners who have banded together to solve the problems um, in a more efficient way. And a lot of times these, these mining pools or in other cases, big mining um, companies or corporations, uh, they control more market power, if you will, in the sense that they're, they're producing uh, more a disproportionate amount of the coins compared to some guy in a basement. Right? Um, and so one could argue, well, there's really just a handful of people. And this was sort of the argument that Greenpeace had made um, in some news reports I had read. Uh, there's really just a handful of people, maybe a dozen or two dozen uh, people or groups who control sort of most of the, the mining operations that you would need to convince, right? Uh, and uh, to the extent that it's not as decentralized as we think, as complicated, there are sort of concentrations of power to where uh, this might be um, not having to get, you know, every single person, uh, but instead maybe some power players in these markets. So I'm curious, uh, your thoughts, obviously, you're more on the economic side, but is there a role for the government in this process? Are there any policy steps, either uh, market-based or regulatory or what have you, that could maybe incentivize some of these better practices? From a sort of first out the gate basis, we need better data. And this is where government can be very helpful because uh, the, the federal government collects a lot of data already on all sorts of things. And um, I think from the context of, uh, of proof of work cryptocurrencies, getting better data on how much energy they're using uh, and where, uh, what are the sources of that energy. Uh, and this could be, um, you know, whether this is new regulation or uh, taking existing regulation and modifying it to compel um, miners to provide this information to the government could be tremendously helpful because then it gives us a better sense of, okay, how far are our estimates away from what's actual practice? And if they're anywhere near where we think they are um, and what our sort of best estimates are right now, myself included and my co-authors in our work, uh, then this is obviously this huge problem. And then it sort of comes down to, okay, well, what do we do about it? And this ranges the gambit from 
completely uh, outlawing uh, or uh, preventing any sort of proof of work cryptocurrencies from being mined that use fossil fuel sources. Right? And so that's sort of one command and control approach for how you would deal with this. Another is the case of China, which um, uh, almost a year ago, I think at this point, maybe slightly more than a year ago, uh, completely banned the use of um, uh, banks, you know, banned banks from accepting uh, cryptocurrencies. And then shortly thereafter, banned all mining in the country. And prior to that, China had been, uh, as to the best of our knowledge, the largest miner of um, cryptocurrency in the world. And they literally went from being the largest to essentially zero overnight. Uh, and uh, lots of reasons were given, right? But among these was just the tremendous energy use. And so these are sort of these command and control policies. We haven't seen um, per se more market-based um, such as a tax, right, uh, on, on these things, right? And one could think of a tax as incorporating the externality that the mining of the coins um, creates on society, just like when you burn some coal, right, there's um, um, some value to burning that coal in a coal-fired power plant, but it generates some impacts on society. And so uh, there could be, you know, uh, some sort of taxes on this, or there could be some regulations around the pollution emissions in order to reduce the pollution emissions to make it more in line with what is socially optimal. So these sorts of things are on the table, certainly. Um, but as of yet, we've seen more of these command and control regulations and less of the market-based. Dr. Jones, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks, Ethan. It's been a pleasure. This wraps up episode 97 of The Sweaty Penguin. Take two minutes, help out the show, and get a shout-out at the end of the show by leaving a five-star rating and a review on Apple or Podcast Addict, or join our Patreon at patreon.com slash thesweatypenguin. You get merch, bonus content, and more. Clips today came from The Economist, CNBC International, Coindesk, Decrypt Media, and CNBC Television. Special thanks to our Emperor Penguin patrons, Lawrence Harris and Brownie Central. The Sweaty Penguin is presented by Peril and Promise, a public media initiative from the WNET Group in New York, reporting on the issues and solutions around climate change. You can learn more at pbs.org slash perilandpromise. The opinions expressed in this podcast are those of the host and guests. They do not necessarily reflect the opinions or views of Peril and Promise or the WNET group. Thank you all for listening, and I'll see you next week.